0: Lauren Bloomer's phone recorded the entire incident. Her boyfriend, Jake Notman, was attacking her, screaming with intense rage that he would never effing see her again. He rain blows down upon her before grabbing a knife. She ended up being stabbed over 30 times. The recording ends with Jake driving his car over Lauren's body. Her phone recorded the incident for over 17 minutes. Then Jake calmly called the police at 1.32 a.m. and told them, I have killed my girlfriend. What caused this vicious attack? Killing, missing. The podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to your favorite podcast that has been MIA recently, Killing, Missing, Hidden. In case you've forgotten, I'm your host, your old buddy, Brad. Because we don't handle business up front, I'd like to ask you to direct your attention to the end of the episode for an update on our situation and how it will affect the future of KMH. Is that cryptic? I wanted it to be cryptic. One bit of business we always put up front, though, is whenever someone has chosen to be baptized in the glory that is KMH+. This week, I'm so happy and honored to announce that Kimberly has subscribed as our newest convert. Welcome to the team. So cool of Kimberly to join. I mean, we were kind of cool before, but now we have someone as amazing as Kimberly on board. It's, It's like getting endorsed by one of the plastics from me girls except like in a really really good way um i don't think that came out as complimentary as i wanted it to i'm I'm sorry kimberly but you know what i do for uh, what a doofus i am and i'm just really excited that you're part of the team um so before i embarrass myself anymore let's just get to the story okay Lauren Bloomer was born in June of 1995 and is 25 at the time of our story. She was considered to be an intelligent young woman known for her sense of humor. She loved all forms of the arts, but photography was her favorite and also her hobby. She came from a good family and she was generally well liked by most people. Now, Lauren's life changed after meeting Jake Noteman in 2020, shortly after he broke up with a long-time girlfriend. For whatever reason, Lauren and Jake just, you know, instantly clicked. And one thing that they had in common was a deep and passionate love for video games. Lauren was a student at Nottingham University in England, so she had a little bit of, you know, a little bit more time to indulge. In the habit while Jake worked at a local Land Rover manufacturing plant. So he had the funds to fuel their hobby. By the end of 2020, Lauren moved in with Jake in Tamworth, Shadf- Shadfordshire. Stadfordshire. I can pronounce English names sometimes. Stadfordshire. All right, anyway. Excitedly, Lauren and Jake were able to get their hands on. The highly anticipated and sought after PS5 when it launched in November of 2020 in the UK. And they decided that this was a day of celebration. So they planned accordingly. They were going to have a big night where they gamed all night and just had the time of their lives appreciating the new console they now had in hand. But Jake managed to secure a special surprise for their long evening. A large brownie. Not just any brownie. A special brownie. A brownie that had the marijuana in it. Yeah. Now, it, it appears undisputed that both Jake and Lauren were not strangers to having an occasional taste of the devil's lettuce. But neither had tried it in edible form. So this was, you know, exciting on two fronts for them. But really, once they started gaming, they kind of forgot about the brownie. They were just too into all the new worlds this console gave them. Eventually, they called it a night, and as they were getting ready for bed, Jake remembered the brownie. He kind of ended up overindulging, underestimating the amount of marijuana he was consuming, and it ended up not going well. Before long, Jake was having a bad trip like a very very bad trip he tried to go to bed to sleep it off but he was just too fidgety and restless he couldn't stay still in bed so he 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 was getting more frustrated with the situation because things didn't feel right he didn't feel right he couldn't rest he couldn't lay down but lauren was there and she tried to calm him And do what she could to keep him at peace. But she had never seen this side of Jake before. She had never seen such a different person. Such a bad reaction. Soon he started begging her to slap him in the face. Just with this hope that it would bring him back to life. You know, snap him back to normal. But that didn't work. And Lauren began frantically searching online for ways to help. Jake. She was looking up, you know, things on Google about, you know, what do you do when somebody's having a bad trip? And according to her phone records, she started doing this at approximately 1 in the morning. Then at 1.15, Lauren's phone began recording. Now, we don't know if this was intentional by her or kind of a frantic, accidental push of a button. But regardless... Phone's recording. She ends up calling Jake's uncle, Craig, who just happened to work as an EMT to ask for help because she was not happy with what was going on. She was really scared, and she wanted Jake to, you know, get back to being himself. Craig said he would hurry over and try to help out. In the background of this call, however, you can hear Jake screaming, and it wasn't normal things he was screaming that he wanted to murder Lauren. She kept saying, I love you, calm down. I'm only trying to help. But no, he was frantically angry at her and screaming how much he wanted her dead. Moments later, Jake really began going down the water slide. He grabbed Lauren and began to choke her. But she was able to fend him off and she kind of grabbed Jake by the back of the neck and forced him to go downstairs and said, you go calm down. You're out of control. Calm down. After a few minutes, Lauren could hear Jake pacing back and forth. She decided to check on him. And when she got there, Jake was walking in a very aggressive manner as he paced and he was holding a knife. Before Lauren could really process the gravity of the situation, Jake attacked, and he begins savagely stabbing Lauren. Now, he she managed to break away from Jake for a moment and ran outside into the street, screaming for help. Jake gave chase and just continued his assault there on the pavement. When Lauren collapsed... On the street, outside of their home, Jake finally stopped stabbing her and then went inside. Unfortunately, Jake almost immediately thereafter reappeared in his car. With his window down, Jake was screaming maniacally at Lauren that he was going to make sure she was dead this time. He then drove over Lauren's motionless body. Police noted that it appeared he did this slowly, ensuring that the pressure from his car would end her life. Craig, again Jake's uncle, the EMT, arrived shortly after Jake had parked his car, and Craig just rushed to Lauren's aid and began giving her CPR in this desperate attempt to save her life. The commotion... had been caused the yelling the screaming the running over all of it got neighbors attentions and neighbors began calling the police meanwhile Jake fled from his car fled from the outside and went inside to the corner of his bedroom this is when he called police and said he had just killed his girlfriend Police and emergency services arrived approximately 12 minutes after they were first contacted. Police immediately went into the residence while EMTs worked with Craig to try to revive Lauren. When police found Jake, he was still in the fetal position in the corner of his bedroom and was babbling about how none of this was real, how he wasn't real, how he didn't understand what was going on. And he paid no mind to law enforcement. It was as if they weren't there. On the street, paramedics determined Lauren couldn't be revived, and she passed away on that dark, cold street. Jake, of course, was immediately taken into custody, but he was taken to a local hospital to try to get through this bad trip. And then he got a free ride to prison. As he slowly kind of sobered up and came to his senses, Jake refused to speak with any of the investigators. Detectives combed through the crime scene, and there they found part of the brownie that Jake hadn't finished, as well as two other bags of marijuana. After his fifth attempted interview, Jake still refused to speak, but at the end he said he would make a written statement. So police got him some paper and a pen, and here's what he wrote. Quote, I, Jake Noteman certify, I'd taken a weed brownie. It absolutely was my very first time actually ever ingesting marijuana in this manner. I had smoked them on three events only. The brownie must have included more than simply marijuana in it to have the effect that it did on me. And that's all Jake would say about the situation. So after giving this statement, Jake was taken back to the hospital so he could receive a full mental evaluation. And in the course of this, the psychiatrists that examined him determined that Jake really wasn't suffering from any mental illness. In fact, by the time he went through this evaluation, he was back to his regular self. The drugs had totally worn off. He ended up being examined by three psychiatrists in total. All three evaluated Jake at different times, but all three came to the same conclusion. Jake was not of sound mind at the time of the crime due to the influence of the marijuana. He didn't know he was hurting anyone because his reality had become so warped by the intoxication. They were of the opinion that he believed he had no real choice over his actions. They did note, all three of them, that the amount of marijuana in Jake's system was surprisingly small, and there was no history of such a low amount of weed causing such a drastic reaction in some During her autopsy, it was determined that Jake had stabbed Lauren 30 times all over her body. The stabbed were delivered with unusual force, with several of the thrusts chipping Lauren's bones. The death blow was believed to be a roughly 5.5-inch or 16 centimeter, deep incision across Lauren's chest that perforated one of her lungs and sliced into her pulmonary artery. Lauren's hands showed extensive signs of defensive wounds, and some of the wounds were believed to be part of Lauren's efforts to grab the knife from Jake's hand by the blade. Now, because of this unanimous psychiatric evidence, Jake was not charged with the murder, only manslaughter. And after attempting to fight the charges for a while, he eventually decided to plead guilty to this charge. A sentencing hearing was held on November 24th, 2021. At this hearing, prosecutors played the 17-minute recording, which multiple people from both sides of the aisle described as something like from the movie Scream. Lauren's mom also testified, and of course, she she spoke about how just devastating this was to lose her daughter so young and in such a horrific way, How and how it had just kind of ruined their family. Um, she said that she personally was physically sick from the event, and all she could do in to pass the time anymore was to sleep or to cry. The judge ended up sentencing Jake to eight years and eight months' imprisonment, but found that he was entitled to parole after five years and nine months in custody because he had accepted responsibility for his actions, he had demonstrated genuine remorse, and he had no criminal history. In fact, Jake is scheduled to be released back into the free world on November 23rd, 2025. Obviously, this is a very straightforward case. That's exceptionally sad. Jake's reaction to the marijuana was extreme, but not unheard of. You know, something hit him just right, or I guess just wrong, really, and caused him to lose control. And it created this horrible tragedy. Having said this, I think there are some different issues we can get into. Now, I want to talk about the idea of kind of an insanity defense based on the use of drugs. This this just doesn't work under the U.S. criminal justice system. You know, just because you get blackout drunk or you're so high you can't remember doing anything, is generally not recognized as a defense. Uh, Voluntary intoxication is considered an intentional act, and doing weird, stupid, or surprising things as a result of your intoxication is generally considered to be a foreseeable consequence particularly when you're ingesting mind-altering substances. So there's not really a mechanism in most states for you to get off from a criminal act because you overindulge in something and really didn't have control of yourself. Except, there's always an exception to the law, right? So except in some very unusual situations, would this argument even have a chance of working? Now, if you're in a situation where, say, your drink is spiked with a drug and you end up committing a crime, you may have a defense there. That would be involuntary intoxication. And this would be consistent with why voluntary intoxication is not a defense. Here, you're not intentionally taking, you know, drugs or alcohol or what have you. It's a surprise to you. It's not something you intended to do. And so you don't, you know, you have the argument that you shouldn't be punished for something that you didn't know Was happening. Now, having said that, most judges are going to want some pretty dang good evidence that you truly had no idea you were hammered before they'll let you argue this in a criminal case. But it has happened and it has been successful. But I will say, when it's successful, it usually makes headlines in the world of law. There is another potential exception, and it's one that sort of applies in this case, and that would be if you took a substance that you are familiar with, but for whatever reason, it caused an unexpected reaction this time. Again, this is much, much rarer, but, you know, the idea behind it is to, to break it down as simple as I can. What if you just have one beer? You know, if you're a fellow or a lady that likes to have, you know, a few drinks a week, what if you just have one can of beer? Or what if you just have one glass of wine? But when you drink that glass of wine or that one beer, For some reason, you get triggered in a way you've never experienced, and it causes you to act like a crazy monster, and you do stupid things. Well, you know, arguably because you've never experienced that, you couldn't really anticipate that. And so the idea that you are voluntarily intoxicated doesn't fit real neatly here. And, you know, like like we've talked, you know, Jake had had marijuana before. He had never had it in an edible form. That's a little slightly different situation here. Again, if you're drinking a glass of wine every night, you know, or every other night or what have you. I don't want to make you a drunk. I like you. Uh, but, you know, if you're having a glass of r- wine regularly and then you have a glass of wine and something causes a reaction... That is a little different than Jake, you know, indulging semi regularly in marijuana and then consuming it as an edible rather than smoking it. I guess it'd be like if you mainlined alcohol, I'm assuming you could survive that. Um, I I would expect though that this would be a really really tough road to hoe primarily because you would have to get in front of a jury and say, yeah, I did the drugs, and I've done the drugs before, but for some reason it hit me different this time. And I think, I mean, it's going to vary from, you know, across the the U.S., depending on the region, but, you know, we tend to have in, in the U.S. a pretty... A pretty, you know, law and order flavored way of thinking about, you know, criminal justice. It's it's as I mentioned before, if you're if you're called to sit on a criminal jury and you're sitting there and you're waiting for the defendant to be brought in, and he or she walks in the courtroom, almost everybody's first thought is, I wonder what he did which instantly shows some bias. You know, this, the, the government doesn't get it wrong, right? Police don't get it wrong. So then you have to go up there and say, oh, yeah, I've taken these these drugs before, but when I took them on this particular night, something different happened. You're really tainting yourself in a tough light. And I think you're going to have to have some really, really strong evidence Like Jake did here, you know, three psychiatrists all testifying that he didn't know what he was doing is pretty compelling evidence. Um, I would dare say this probably wouldn't work in the South, no matter how much good evidence you have. But there's some jurisdictions where I could see that this would fly. Now, I've discussed this before, but this is essentially, you know, roping in the insanity defense. And what is the insanity defense? Well, in the U.S., you don't know right from wrong at the time the crime was committed. And again, we kind of do have that here with Jake. We've got three different psychiatrists all saying his reality was so messed up at the time he killed Lauren. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know right from wrong. He wasn't in control of his actions. Now, in practice in the U.S., and again, I can only really speak to Alabama, but in any jurisdiction where your prosecutors are elected, you're going to find a huge flaw, in my opinion. And that flaw is if the state hears that you're going to use an insanity defense or technically not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. They They certainly have a right to have a psychiatrist examine you. They have a right for that psychiatrist to give testimony. Well, they are going, if they hire a psychiatrist to examine you, the psychiatrist comes back and says, I really think this dude was out of it at the time the crime happened they're probably not going to use your testimony in court. They're probably going to hire somebody else. And from that day forward, you won't be able to get any work as a psychiatrist from the local government. So essentially they're looking for someone to play ball, somebody that will support their theory of the case. Ethically, As an attorney, this is absolutely wrong. It should not happen. A prosecutor's job is not to obtain a conviction. Ethically, their job is to see that the truth comes out. They have no obligation to vigorously pursue a criminal charge. They only have an obligation to make sure that what they're doing is proper and truthful. But politically, This just doesn't fly. As long as prosecutors are elected, this is just going to be the reality of the situation. I even know, to take it a step further, I even know of one situation where the defense, the defendant was an older fella. The defense hired a psychiatrist who said, this guy's got dementia. He has no idea what day it is, much less what was going on when he committed this crime. The state hired their own psychiatrist, gave him the same opinion. They hired another, gave him the same opinion. Hired a third, gave him the same opinion. So the state said, okay, I mean, it is what it is. They have a hearing before the case gets going too far on this dude's mental capacity, whether he was you know, legally sane at the time of the crime. The defense presented their testimony. The state did the honorable thing and noted that they had hired three different psychiatrists who all said, this man is suffering from dementia. It's been going on for a while. At the time of this crime, he probably had no idea where he was. Judge didn't accept it judge appointed his own expert, his own psychiatrist, to examine the defendant. And the psychiatrist came back and said, basically, that from interviewing the defendant, his opinion was inconclusive. And on the basis of that, the judge said, nope, you're not allowed to use the insanity. Now, this was a very political case with lots of media attention. And again, judges in Alabama are elected. So apparently this one had made up his mind that no matter what, a jury was going to decide client's fate. I also want to touch on the cruelty of this crime um, because this is where I have a hang up. And it may be a flaw of mine or an imperfection of mine. You know, if Jake has a bad trip and he kills Lauren by choking her like he tried to in the bedroom or something along those lines, I would be inclined to be a little bit more lenient with Jake. I would, you know, I'd be much more inclined to believe the psychiatrist's or accept the psychiatrist's point of view, their opinions. Jake, you know, being sent downstairs and grabbing a knife is a little bit more concerning to me. And, and let me let, let me let me qualify all this at this point. I, I'm speaking purely from a non-emotional, you know, academic, sterilized point of view. I'm not letting my emotions get involved in this. I'm just trying to analyze it. So, you know, to me, Jake going downstairs and then finding a knife seems like a lot more purposeful action. I can, you know, I, I, when you, if he chokes Lauren to death, I can see that as as this moment born out of rage where he's not in control because he's he's so out of it. When he goes downstairs and he's pacing and he picks up a knife, there's some intent there. Now, again, I'm not qualified to be questioning these psychiatrists at all. And that is a tiny act. You know, it's just, if it's sitting there on the counter and he just picks it up. That's a little bit different than if he goes into the kitchen and digs around for a knife. I don't know which one happened. But regardless, he takes this extra step to weaponize himself. Which bothers me. But I can can deal with that. You know, in analyzing this case, the psychiatrist said he doesn't know what he's doing. Okay, okay. You know, if he's seeing monsters and he sees a weapon and he needs to defend himself from the monsters, I get it. But where what what I can't get over is Jake getting his car. This, I mean, essentially, he has to attack Lauren with the knife, chase her out into the street, finish the job there, go back into his garage, get in his car, put the keys in, or possibly go back inside the house, find his keys, and come out to the garage. Back out his car. Then he has to right his car to get it in the correct direction to run Laura over. And then he has to be in control of himself enough to be able to hit her. Now, I understand it's not like racing, you know, the Le Mans or the Indy 500 or anything like that. He's hitting a stationary object. I hate saying it like that. But but this whole series of decisions that have to be made one after another after another It just seems ridiculously violent and cruel and intentional and time-consuming. And and look, I get that this drug-induced psychotic episode, or whatever you want to call it, lasted for hours. I get that. I get that. And again, I don't understand how the brain works as well as psychiatrists and all that. But just as a human being, that strikes me as really, really odd that you can do all of that, which is a rather complicated series of events, all things considered, and still have professionals say he didn't know what he was doing. It just, it's hard for my little mind to accept that this level of calculation doesn't demonstrate evidence of an intent to do wrong. But again, I recognize my limitations to some degree. I recognize that this may just be a bias I have. It's just very, very surprising to me. Now, I kind of wanted to talk this out about how this would go down in Alabama. Uh, Just to give y'all a little bit of insight. Again, Alabama is not representative of the United States, but most of our criminal justice systems are designed pretty closely together. They've all been shaped by federal law in the US. And so there's a lot of standards that apply in the same way. There's different nuances in every state, sure. There's different biases in every state, sure. But I think this would be, for those of you who care about such things, I think this would be informative. So how does this play out in Alabama? Very easy. Jake goes to jail, and he goes to jail for a long time. No doubt. I mean, down in the South, we do tend to have the attitude of lock them all up and let God figure it out. And, you know, what you're going to look at is you have a woman who's brutally killed. She's then run over after she's been stabbed. She's recorded the entire event. So there's no question about who did it. You have the defendant admitting it to police that he did it. He's just blaming it on drugs. Yeah. The jury would have this case for about 20 minutes and return a uh, guilty verdict on murder, not manslaughter, but murder. And even if he had a kind judge, He's probably looking at at least 30 years in prison. Okay, so if you're in this situation, how do you defend someone like Jake? Well, first of all, you don't try the dang case. If you take this to a jury and you get found guilty, he's going to get hammered. But you do go through the motions of preparing for the case because you want the state to know that you're doing everything you can to give him a fight. You would have to find a way to get your own expert. And you would want to get one with as many fancy-sounding degrees as possible. And you're going to want to make sure that the prosecutors know that you have this expert. Because odds are, again, speaking in Alabama, if they're going to hire an expert, it's going to be someone who's not very expensive because we don't fund anything in Alabama. So you get to point out that, hey, I've hired this this professor from Harvard who has degrees from Princeton and Oxford. And, you know, he's evaluated my client. He thinks there's a real question about whether or not he knew what he was doing when this murder occurred. And you've got this psychiatrist who got a degree from the University of Fifth Rate Education. I, you know, if I were you, I'd be a little concerned about competing experts here. I, I don't know that you win that one. That's Prosecutors are always terrified of losing cases. They don't want to take a case to trial and lose. Again, because it's a political position. They don't want that showing up in the paper that they lost a case. And so they try to only take the ones to trial that are slam dunks. Well, any way you can chip away at their confidence, you do. So, by being able to hire this expert, you probably start casting some doubt on what's going on here as far as the mental state. Is a jury really going to believe the state's witness, or are they going to go along with our highfalutin? professor of everything. Well, that's going to start a conversation. And during the course of this conversation, I would suspect that you could get the prosecutor to agree to consider a manslaughter charge. And that is the hump you need to get over in order to defend Jake in this case in Alabama. Why is that so important? Because manslaughter is a class B felony while murder is a class A felony. And the difference in sentencing is massive. A class B felony, you can serve between two and 20 years in jail. A class A felony, it's 10 to life. Well, if you can get them on the manslaughter train, you've all of a sudden opened up a bunch of possibilities because now your worst case scenario is 20 years. But for the purposes of a negotiation, it would be very difficult to reach a deal where your clients can plead to the maximum sentence. Prosecutors know that. And so at least from my experience in working in the world of law, They don't hit you with the maximums unless they've got you absolutely dead to right. Physical evidence here? Yes, they do. Jake absolutely did it. He admitted to it. It's on video. He's confessed to it. But it's the expert testimony that you lean on. And if you get enough question in the prosecutor's mind that they're willing to talk manslaughter rather than murder, then you can talk a sentence down from the max. Your goal is to get under 15 years. If you can get a sentence of 15 years or less, then your client would be eligible for good time. You don't get this with the Class A felony in Alabama. You don't get this if the sentence is over 15 years in Alabama. But if you can get a sentence of 15 years or less... That's good time. And good time basically means as long as your client behaves in jail, he can reduce his sentence big time. Big time. Uh, In fact, in most cases, you get three days credit for every day served, meaning you reduce your sentence by about a third or down to a third. So. You know, my goal would be we're going to shoot for somewhere between 10 and 15 years for our sentence. You know, 12, I guess, would be my goal roughly because I like simple math and the simple math says that's in reality a four-year sentence. And I don't think it would be very hard to reach that goal with the district attorney. Once you've gotten them off the murder idea, once they're not committed to pursuing murder charges, I think you've got a real good shot of getting a very good deal for Jake. Now, you have to be careful and not get greedy, which is where so many attorneys screw up. You are not going to get this case dismissed. You are not going to get it pled down to a misdemeanor. You are not going to get it pled down to a Class C felony or you could look for probation. He's facing a real charge. There's no way around that. And manslaughter is perfect here because it puts your client in a position where he can walk out of jail in the shortest amount of time. The state gets to say that they... We're able to put this man away in jail for a period of 12 years. If we say, if that's what we agreed to on a manslaughter charge. That sounds good to the press. This is going to sound, or this should sound good to the family. Um, You know, four years of doing time versus 30 years of doing time. You do the math, you know? And, you know, if the state somehow lost the case, the media would go crazy. If he pled to some assault-type charge, the media would go crazy. But manslaughter, that sounds like a serious crime, and that's all people care about. So I I, I didn't mean for that to come across as like an advertisement for how amazing I, I was as an attorney or anything like that. I do it just to say this experienced practitioners know how to work a criminal case, and that's not in the courtroom. Very little of it is in the courtroom. It's all the stuff that occurs behind the scenes, and if you're ever in the unfortunate position where you have to hire a criminal defense attorney, understand that the more you allow them to negotiate and talk and let the case drag on, typically the better deal you're going to get. You know, I, I hope this shows you to some degree kind of how an attorney would approach a case like Jake's. It's unwinnable, but that doesn't mean you can't do some good for your client. I mean... This is one where absolutely you go to Jake's mama and say, just be prepared for your boy to go to prison. The only question is how long. And again, 30 versus 4 is pretty easy to pick the number you want there. Now, let me put the spotlight back where it needs to be, okay? Lauren was murdered. Lauren was murdered because she tried to help somebody she loved. She did everything she could to save Jake from a bad trip. And he killed her for it. It ain't right. Okay. And in my opinion, he got off too easy. Even given my example, four years is too easy. But, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, where I was talking earlier about prosecutors ethically have a duty to try to find out the truth and go from there a criminal defense attorney's job is to zealously protect their clients' rights and ensure that they get the best deal possible under the law. And so you don't have the option of saying, this guy sucks. I hate him. He shouldn't be in the free world. Let me just plead him to 20 years and get rid of him. Now, you've got a lot of attorneys that will do that, but it won't be because they object to what their client did. They'll do it because they can say, give me 10 grand and I'll represent your son. And then they'll just plead him out and get the case over with as quickly as possible. I also want to point out, and God, I feel like some sort of like moral, like a local community moral committee. But, and I'm not naive, but this is a little bit of an example. Sometimes marijuana can be dangerous. It's unusual, yes, but, especially when we have reports of fentanyl and things like that getting mixed in with various drugs. I mean, unless you're getting it from a dispensary, if you're buying marijuana off the street, just just be careful. That's... That's just, it's dangerous. And this case kind of highlights that, unfortunately. You know, I, it, neither Lauren knew, nor Jake, I believe, knew that this was going to happen. I do believe Jake did not do this fully aware of what he was doing. Um, and so it's sad, but all right. I'm rambling now. I apologize for that. Um, let's just get to our palate cleanser. This one actually comes from a listener by the name of Graham. So if you hate it, blame him. That's a good way of encouraging y'all to send in jokes, right? In fairness, this is a simple one, but I like it. Part of me thinks I may have used it before, but, you know, I'm going to trust the listener on this one. Um, I was going to tell y'all a joke about, Time traveling. But it turns out y'all didn't really like it. Yeah, it's a nice one. It's simple. It's stupid. It really hits all the marks for a KMH joke, doesn't it? Nice, simple, stupid. I think that's our podcast motto, too. All right. Um... I said something about having an announcement about the future of the show. So here's that part. I am not in a position where I can promise an episode a week any longer. I want to. I like to. This is fun to me. Researching the cases is fun. But to be blunt, my mental health continues to blossom in new fun ways that just make my life so interesting um you know i've gone from having generalized anxiety to generalized panic and now apparently i'm developing some sort of dissociative issue hasn't been formally diagnosed but things are getting weirder in my world and whenever the crap hits it drains all my energy and it drains at something fierce so, from this point forward, we're kind of officially a release it when you can type of podcast until I can get myself straightened out. Um, I'm still gonna try to get these out every Tuesday, but you know i'm not I'm not gonna make announcements, and I'm trying not to feel guilty over. The fact, you know, if I don't reach that mark in in the future, we're just going to take the approach that. Episodes are going to come out whenever they can come out. And if that means, you know, I can't do one next week and the following week, it comes out on Wednesday. So be it. And nobody's going to get mad about it. Nobody's going to feel bad about it. Not ideal. Not what I want. But we're working with what we got. As always, thank y'all so much for listening. Uh, You can do anything with your time, and you choose to use it listening to me. That's so sweet of y'all. Shout out again to Kimberly for joining our little KMH Plus group. She is amazing, and I will go on the record at any point to defend that fact. Okay, so just give me a call, Kimberly, if you need that. If y'all could, as always, share the show with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your loved ones, your not-so-loved ones, your dogs, whoever you got that may listen. I would appreciate it. Um, also, you know, if you're interested in the KMH+, we're trying to do two bonus episodes a month. We've already got one out this month, so that's good. Hopefully I can keep that promise. But it's only $5 a month, too, unless you want to be extra generous like some. Uh, But it's $5 to unlock those bonus episodes. and we like to do weird stuff. In fact, something that will no doubt infuriate some of y'all, our last uh, KMH Plus episode was about the missing 411 phenomenon, which tends to be everybody's favorite topic. So there's one of those out there for you. So until next time, just please, everyone, you know, Go out there, do something nice. I, I, what I would suggest is go pet three animals. Show them some love. Get some love in return. And please don't murder anyone. We need all the listeners we can get, okay? So thanks again, everyone. Appreciate y'all tuning in. This is Brad out. You survived another episode of huh? Kellen Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.